welcome back to Kyle's Internal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the Babylon 5 Season 2 episode, In the Shadow of Zaha Doom. So, this episode, things really come to a head, and we now have a lot of more information on particular events and races and situations of the ongoing plot of Babylon 5. As I mentioned last episode, things are really starting to pick up, which is why I think a Nefer word is such a great uh, uh, way to introduce people, is that this is what the show becomes, and then you, you send them back to the gathering if necessary. Uh, you know, you know if, they're, if getting them into an older show is a bit harder. However, I do think that everybody should always start at the gathering if they are willing. But uh, in the Shadow of Zaha Doom brings a lot of stuff to the table um, and all of it's important and there's not a single minute wasted. Uh, this is all really good stuff. This is a really good episode. This is a foundational episode where everything that comes after is built on it. It's like a brick lane. Uh, you know, this is the foundation and then from here we're going to build upon it. It's, it's really, really, really important. Obviously, the main stuff is with Sheridan and Morden, so I'll talk about everything surrounding that first. The Franklin and Ivanova stuff, I really loved, especially their scene when Ivanova forces uh, Franklin to take a break and go eat. I love that scene, because um, Franklin is at his wit's end. Because we're having a refugee crisis here. Uh, and, and this is very, very in tune with what Babylon 5 is. You know, it's a very political show. It's a very um, progressive show. And it's a very, um, uh, a, a very topical show. And so dealing with a refugee crisis, especially in the midst of war, is something that a lot of, uh, you know, you know, everyone has to deal with at some point during uh, wartime is people caught in the middle, you know, survivors, uh, people who are beaten and bloodied and dying and need nothing but help. And there's a lot of issues that come from that. Uh, and I love Sheridan's reaction of, you know, I'm not going to let someone die, you know, in the docking bay. I'm going to make sure that they're all right, send them to the med bay. Um, and everybody talks about, you know, it's it's hard not to feel for the, the, the refugees. We just don't have the room. Refugees is not an easy topic, and it, 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 morally you should be helping them, but resources is hard to come by. So it's a careful balance, and it's it's a really difficult topic. And I don't, I don't particularly want to talk about a situation like that uh, beyond to say that it, it is an incredibly realistic situation for them to have to deal with a refugee crisis because, of course, they would be coming to a neutral territory, seeking asylum, needing help. And once again, almost all the refugees are Narn because the Narns are losing the war. They're just getting steamrolled by the Centauri. They stand no chance. And it is heartbreaking to see this on display. And they, they have to be helped. Uh, and it, it, it's difficult to do. Uh, and, you know, uh, th that scene with Franklin Ivanova where he talks about, you know, uh, where, where she's like, they're beyond hope and help. And he's like, beyond help, yes, beyond hope, no. And that's where we get, I think, one of my personal favorite philosophical discussions uh, in this show, where Franklin asks, do you believe in God? 
Ivanova goes, I was raised Jewish. And he goes, I didn't ask how your adolescence was. I asked, do you believe in God? She goes, sometimes, yes. Uh, and it's very, very indicative of who Ivanova is as a person. She is Jewish, yes. That's what she was raised to be. But she's also a pessimist. And she's seen some pretty horrible stuff in her life. And... Uh, she's not sure if God exists. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. And she's in conflict with her own faith. Because every time she's put faith in something, it's blown up in her face. And so uh, she has to be able to be in control and to see it with her own eyes. And she can't do that with faith. And that's when we get Franklin's opinion on faith, where he does believe in God. He's part of a new religion that was founded in the B5 universe called the Foundationists. And they believe that God is uh, exists. Uh, some sort of creator being exists. An all-powerful being. But they, whoever they were, disappeared and continues to move further away. Because the more we have answers... Uh, the less questions we have. And the closer you get to understanding God, the further you are from having faith in him, basically, is the concept. So uh, so God is forever a mystery, and we take faith and comfort in that mystery. And I like that. That's a very interesting way to look at religion. And I like that JMS looks at how not just alien cultures have different religions than we are, but there are new religions founded on Earth as a result of differences and changes in society over hundreds and hundreds of years. Like that concept, especially because the Foundationists are were formed after uh, humans discovered aliens, uh, implying that it was used to reason out uh, how aliens can exist and that humans were the quote-unquote chosen by God, you know, created by God in his image. Um, and so it, it becomes an interesting philosophical discussion. And Franklin says a wonderful line where he goes, you know, I, uh, you know, w when someone dies, uh, you know, you see God reflected in their eyes. Uh, and he's like, I've seen a lot of I've seen a lot of gods reflected in people's eyes, and I'm wondering how I can stop believing in them when they've stopped believing in me. It's it's powerful because he's struggling to be in control, much like Sheridan is in his side of the story. They're struggling to put the pieces back together, struggling to uh, fix everything, and that that is proving incredibly difficult. And it's taxing. And as we see, you know, Franklin was half asleep in the med bay dealing with all the refugees. And he's having to take stems to try and keep himself awake. And he is just overworked, stressed out. And it's, you know, taking a toll on him. And the emotional damage. While doctors are supposed to maintain an, a cold emotional distance between themselves and their patients in order to deal with the situation... A lot of doctors will tell you that, th that maintaining that sort of cold distance is incredibly hard, especially in a triage situation where a lot of people are going to die. In order to turn off that part of your brain, that empathetic human side of your brain, it takes a lot of skill. And even those who are properly trained sometimes have a hard time completely turning it off. And it takes an emotional toll, whether you want it to or not. And it is. Franklin is suffering with the facts that people are dying and he can't do anything to help them. As he said, they're at the, uh, beyond help, yes. Beyond hope, no. 
Um, it is a fascinating discussion. Then the Ministry of Peace is honestly the most scary thing about this episode. I mentioned before about how the Ministry of Morale, uh, uh, like personal morale, was fucking scary last episode and the, the Psychor propaganda, but now the Ministry of Peace, many packs, is, of course, a reference to the Ministry of Peace uh, from 1984 by Orwell. But here's the thing. It, they're the Nazis. They're unabashed Nazis. They are secret police. Uh, they they believe it's the Inquisition. You can find any number of different organizations throughout history uh, that have held the same beliefs and the same ideologies, and it's fucking scary because I've seen that I've seen that ideology thought in real life. I've seen it. Uh, on the news I've also seen uh, some of it in person it's honestly scary uh, to even think about the the idea is is that they sugarcoat their words and their horrendous ideologies in um, powerful and charismatic presentation uh, you know why would you go against the ministry of peace because all they want to do is help they want to bring peace if you're against us if you're against peace, then you're 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 the enemy, you know, because obviously you want war. Because you, uh, anybody that's anti-peace is, is immediately pro-war, you know. That kind of ideology it turns everything into a black and white us versus them mentality, and they sugarcoat it, uh, and basically make their side seem like the right side, seem like the correct, positive choice, and the armbands. Or is indicative of this. Basically, you're either on our team or you're not. They made a brand out of their own ideology. Uh, and it becomes tribalism. It becomes, uh, you know, us versus them, my side and your side. That's what they turn it into. And the entire idea of what they control, they control uh, basically anti-patriotic sympathies they want to ensure peace so the idea is that anybody can violate the law violate peace cause problems with you know by actions by words or even by thought and you notice when he says that he's right next to talia and he approached her in person to make sure that a telepath was present for his uh, for his little meeting his presentation it wasn't it wasn't just happenstance or the fact that psychor uh, is related to them that he wanted talia winters there no he wanted talia winters there because everybody knows she is the commercial telepath on the station and everybody knows that if a telepath scans you they know what you're thinking and if you can violate peace with a thought then imagine if all the people all the members of the night watch the volunteer organization that will quote unquote keep peace with telepaths and what if you just thought they were stupid or they look dumb or this is, you know, the, 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 the Nightwatch armband is a stupid ideological concept that, that should be, you know, uh, gotten rid of. Well, guess what? You're, vi you're violating the peace. Prepare to be arrested or worse. It is literally hunting down. It's a witch hunt. Hunting down those who do not agree with you and forcing them into submission. It is honestly scary. It, it is the slow decline 
of a democratic society into a totalitarian dictatorship. It is something that has been done in real life many, many, many times throughout history. And it is honestly scary to see when the when the when the right things align for that to happen, because that's when humanity is at its worst. When the real problems with us as a people, as a society, show in the way we show our colors. And Zach is indicative of this. Zach is an honest, well-meaning, humble guy. He's just an ordinary person. Walking the beat, working the security, just like any other security officer. He's just an ordinary policeman. Doesn't mean any harm. He's a perfectly nice, reasonable guy. And he accepts joining the Night Watch. Because they're just going to pay him extra money to do what he already does every day, which is survey the area, make sure no one's violating the law. He doesn't think about it beyond the surface level. Because it's more about how you say something than what you say. So while the Ministry of Peace guy, Pierce, is preaching propaganda and preaching an ideology that sees the destruction of freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom of press, and basically every common freedom known to man and basic in the violation of basic human rights, he couches it in positivity. Uh, you know, so, you know, once again... If you are against us, then you are then you are against peace. And why would you ever want to be against peace? So he goes along with it, thinking they're doing the right thing because he's just getting paid for extra money. Some collaborators don't mean to be collaborators. Some are coerced into it. Some fear pressured to keep other, uh, other loved ones safe. And then the worst of all are those who go along with it because they know no better. And that's sometimes the worst offenders are those people who don't know any better because they just don't look beyond the surface level. And Zach is a well-meaning, honest person who has been deceived by those who couch their words in, uh, in falsities and lies to perpetuate a continued oppression of a people. It's, it's, it's horrifying. And uh, Zach is going to have to deal with the fact that he has joined a group that is effectively the Nazis for a while. You know, this is going to become an ongoing thing. And I would like, and speaking of Zach, I like how he's been a reoccurring presence through the past few episodes to the point that he's pretty much become a mainstay. He doesn't get many very lines, uh, but he's pretty much became a mainstay of the show. <laughs> Hilariously, far more than Warren Keffer, and Warren Keffer's in the fucking titles. Once again, Warren Keffer was forced on the show, you know, by the studio. Not a, not a character that anybody actually wanted to write or use or even was supposed to exist. Now, let's talk about Morden, Sheridan, and the Shadows. So, Sheridan gets involved with this situation way too personally. This is ultimately about letting your personal feelings overlook your better judgment. Uh, and sometimes sacrifices have to be made um, in order for people to live. To quote Sheridan from a, a you know a few episodes ago, what uh, what is it you want more, Jakar? Revenge, or or do you want do you want uh, something good to happen for your people? Uh, you know, and, and Sheridan is faced with that same question, pretty much. 
you know, Morden, as I mentioned before, when he first appeared, one of his first lines was about how he was out exploring the rim. Did you find anything? Yes. Uh, and he was on the Icarus. We now know he was on the Icarus, which once again, I've mentioned this in spoiler sections, that there was always supposed to be the explorer girlfriend or wife of the 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 captain or commander uh, in the original, it was Sinclair, that was supposed to find Zahadum. Uh, and, you know, there was Carolyn, and then there was Catherine, and now there, now there was Anna. Uh, all of them, you know, notice were surveyors or explorers all going out to the rim. Uh, well, this is what would have been the culmination of that, was that they, Morden was on the ship with them and they had found Zaha Doom. So Sheridan has to deal with the fact that he he feels like he had failed Anna. I've mentioned this when his sister showed up. And so this is his one way to make recompense for it, to uh, alleviate his guilt in some way. Uh but he's taking it too far, taking the law into his own hands and uh, forcibly arresting someone who there is no charges for. It is basically what the Ministry of Peace is saying people should do, but except Sheridan knows it's wrong, but he's doing it for a personal vendetta. And Garibaldi rightfully steps in and goes, I cannot be a part of this and resigns. Uh, and it, it is wonderful seeing him, you know, he... Garibaldi is a man who knows what it's like to have a personal vendetta against someone, a personal problem, and want to use your authority to deal with that issue, but knows full well that you shouldn't, and you should never abuse your own power. So he gives Sheridan an ultimatum, and it takes a while for Sheridan to realize his mistakes, realizes that he's taken this too far. Um, and, and I like how he... he violates Talia's own rights of saying that, well, I don't want to have to scan, you know, I don't want to scan him uh, because he hasn't consented and then he cheats away around it and she slaps him and he well deserved that slap. You know, Sheridan may have had good intentions and we can sure as hell understand his motivations, but it was sure as a hell a dick move and he sure as hell deserved that slap. He, he was a massive asshole for doing that. And it takes him realizing that these actions will have further consequences than he was expecting, realizing that personal matters sometimes have to be put aside when bigger issues are at play. And from Kosh, from Kosh and Delenn, he finds out the Shadows and the Vorlons are part of the first ones, and that Morden is working with the Shadows. And, and that his wife and the Icarus at large found the shadows on Zaha Doom and basically he has to let them go he, he, because Morden is never alone and if they know he knows that they're that they're there the shadows will preemptively strike and all the work done by Kosh and by Delenn and by everyone else to prepare for the oncoming battle the oncoming war uh it will be for naught, because they don't stand a chance. Uh, so, he compares it, when he's talking to Zach, he compares it to Coventry. Uh, Coventry is a city in the UK, and there's there's a myth. It's, it, it's long debated whether it was true or not. I believe recently it came out that it was not true, that 
when the British broke the code of the Nazi radios, uh, you know, radio transmissions in World War II, Churchill supposedly knew that they were going to strike uh, Coventry, and he let it happen because if he was to not let it happen, then the Nazis would know that the British broke the code. And, uh, and therefore, the one and only advantage would be taken away. So it was a sacrifice he made to ensure the survivability of everyone else. You know, hundreds, thousands had to die to preserve the other, you know, even more lives. Um, some sacrifices have to be made for the greater good. Once again, this is a myth, but Sheridan, you know, Sheridan compares that. And I agree, the mortal is still there. Whether that story is true, it's meaningless, it's superfluous. The moral of that story, much like all myths, is the point. And the point is, is that sometimes you have to make the hard decision. Sometimes you have to make decisions that you do not agree with morally or uh, and you may even absolutely regret and hate the decisions you're about to make. But sometimes those decisions have to be made in order to protect the lives of others, even if it means sacrificing even more. Uh, it's the entire railroad conundrum. You know, would you sacrifice 100 people to save one or would you sacrifice one to save 100? You know, that, that, that entire concept. And it all leads really nicely into uh, providing more context for the shadows and builds them their mystique that was already massive into a nice really creepy air uh like when when they do the infrared scan and he briefly sees the shadows and, and he goes did you see that and zach goes no and he goes uh and zach goes what was it and Sheridan replies nothing just shadows and then morden's face is just smiling it's eerily creepy and of course that ending of the episode is just epic because he approaches kosh and he's like you're going to teach me how to fight them you said you would teach me how to fight legends well, now you're going to have to teach me. And then, of course, Sheridan receives a prophecy, a prophecy that may or may not come true in the future, that will always be at the back of his head, knowing that every decision must matter. Because if he's to take the fight to the shadows, he must go to Zahadum. And if he goes to Zahadum, he will die. Now, I'm going to talk spoilers real quick before I get out of here. Once again, a fantastic episode. Uh, this is when B5 is like, like it, it's on point all the way and it just keeps getting better and better and better and better. There's a couple clunkers here and there, uh, but for the most part, every episode is top notch from here on out. So of course, Veer has his famous scene with Morden of, uh, when he's asked, what do you want? I'd like to live just long enough to see your head stuck on a pike as a meaning to, uh, to future generations that some favors come at too high a price. I would look at your lifeless eyes and I will wave like this. Once again, Veer proves to be much smarter than he appears. He knows very well that Morden is the devil you know, and the devil always comes for his due. And that is never a price worth having. And, of course, everything with the shadows and the first ones are now nicely set up. We, we, we've we had a lot of hintings about who they were, where they came from. Uh, and, and Kosh is being said that he would be recognized by everyone. Of course, that's because the Vorlons have spent a long time manipulating every race to see them as their religious symbols, angels, gods, etc., 
uh, in that these these first ones are like giants that walked among the stars. Um, of course, the Ministry of Peace and Nightwatch are going to become a big thing. I mentioned Zach uh, having the join, uh, you know, joining them. That he'll regret that in a bit. And then, and then there was there's a very tragic moment where Sheridan gives you know uh, the Garibaldi's uh, Garibaldi's link and uh, PPG back, and uh, and he goes and Garibaldi makes a joke about next time don't do this, and, he, and Sheridan says there won't be a next time. The sad thing is, is yes, Garibaldi will resign again, but it will be under a different context. But despite all of that, Garibaldi will still be Garibaldi. Certain aspects of his personality will have been heightened by the Psychor, but ultimately, that's still Garibaldi, just a different, more amped up, more paranoid Garibaldi, and he will have to live with those decisions. And then, and then of course, I mentioned this at the very end of the non-spoiler section, but of course, the prophecy that Sheridan got: if you die, if you go to Zahadum, you will die. What I love about Babylon Five is that. It doesn't pull its punches. It more than willingly kills off its main character. It does this, but it does it in an interesting way. And I'll talk about more of this when I actually get to Zahadum, uh, and and the first, you know, in the Hour of the Wolf, uh, the the ending episode of season three and beginning episode of season four, that many people can see resurrection as a crutch. What I love about Babylon Five is it, it's not. It's not traditional resurrection. Um, he's got a limited time left. He legitimately died at Zaha Doom. All Lorien does is, you know, breathe on the flames that were already there. He he helped keep the flames light, but eventually the flames are going to go out no matter what because the flames did die there. Uh, you know, so it, it's a death, but it's a different kind of death, and it's not a traditional resurrection. So it's a subverting expectations because either the prophecy comes true or it doesn't. That's the problem with uh, prophecy storytelling. And the way JMS does it is it comes true and then doesn't. But it also comes true. You know, it, it's subverting expectations the correct way. Once again, this show is very well done and really well executed to the point that you can't help but clap at some of the ways it does things and how even newer shows and stories stumble where always Babylon 5 was running because it always knew what it was doing. And I'm not just talking about that it was planned out from the start. I'm talking about that it was so competently written by one person that... Uh, you know, its quality far exceeds many modern serialized television shows. Anyway, I shall see you next week for Knives, the final episode not written by JMS until season five with the Day of the Dead in in written by Neil Gaiman. So we only have that one, and then the rest of the series for a very long time will entirely be written by show creator J. Michael Straczynski. Until then, see ya. Bye.